This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not treat anything in this episode as financial or other advice. The hosts and guests may hold positions in some of the companies and securities discussed. Remember to seek independent professional advice relating to your own circumstances before making any investment decisions. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. <laughs> Hi, thanks for tuning in. I'm Joel. And this is Sam. And welcome to Trawling for 10 Days. This podcast is about learning how to identify high conviction opportunities in small caps on the ASX. We talk to the experts in the space to help you learn how to speculate and protect your capital longer term. Our guest today is Alan Edmonds, an experienced market speculator specialising in small cap ASX companies. Alan uses his own research and analysis combined with fundamental, technical and macro indicators as part of his strategy. In under 12 months, Alan recently turned his $1 million account into over $2.5 million, posting monthly updates along the way. This conversation was recorded in late August 2019. We had such a long conversation that we ended up splitting this episode and releasing it as two parts. Okay, thank you very much, listeners, for joining us to Episode 7, Part 1. We're talking today to Alan Edmonds. Alan, thank you so much for your time and for being on Trawling for 10 Baggers. We understand you've been involved in a 250-bagger. Alan, we believe that's Northern Star since $0.04. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that and how you got involved in market speculation? Yeah, look, I can't guarantee I'm going to give you another 250-bagger, but the Northern Star was a bit of of luck. My background is in um, geology and geophysics. And I was actually just reading through some papers and I saw that uh, Northern Star was um, actually operating in a tenement right next to where I used to work in Western Australia. And that was basically, you know, I thought, I'll just throw some money on that. And that was like like my lotto win. I was just really lucky. Was, you know, I can't uh, say there was any real background behind that. Uh, I've tried ever since then in, re- in resource to try and get uh, the same sort of thing, but I, I learned that Probably from my background, I understand that resource stocks just look like there's thousands on the ASX and not many actually come into production. So I've, I've sort of moved away from that. And was your background in the finance space, Alan, or how did you come to be investing in stocks? Well, uh, I think I always had an interest in stocks. My original degree was um, geology and geophysics, and I went out to Western Australia, started working there, and I, I actually left because I realised I'm not most of the people out there. Uh, I wouldn't say they're loners, but I was not brought up with one of the family kids like that. So I came back to Sydney, and always had an interest in accounting and, and financial statements. And then I went back and did a master's of uh, commerce and professional accounting, so I could understand that a bit better. Okay, so you had that background in the resources space. Did you work in that area for a while as well? Yeah, I worked there for a few years. Once I finished a degree, I went over and worked there. I worked first. I worked in. Um, I seemed to be in a lot of gold actually, because I worked in uh, exploration, gold exploration in Victoria. Um, there was a, you know, we had a funny thing down there. And this was sort of part of why I sort of swayed away from um, investing in the resource sector. Uh, we had a, a minor gold rush down in, in Victoria. We drilled one hole and it was just like laced with pure gold. And we had people flying in from all different states to come in to, to find this, you know, to, to actually pan the gold. I was the geologist on the, on the rig at the time, and we were just panning free gold. The problem was that that was the only hole that we hit gold in. There was an alluvial thing we hit right on the corner of the 
of an old riverbed, and that's where all the gold had been dumped. And ever since then, every other hot hole was absolutely barren. So I felt so heartbroken for the poor guys who owned the tenement, spent so much money on it. But it taught me a big lesson that, you know, you might get one good drill hole, but that doesn't mean you're going to get a mine out of it. Yeah, it sounds like even when you, you might know the resource or be very close to the results as they come out, doesn't mean anything once the next drill hole comes up. Well, well, look, that's exactly correct. I see a lot of people get excited about one drill hole, and I know I've been, at, I said I worked in Western Australia, probably know Waluna. That's where one of the biggest gold resources is. I worked there for ages and I never saw any gold because it's so fine. But, you know, good assays are coming back. But then we had smaller companies, which were sort of like all around us, which weren't finding anything. So the amount of money that was being spent on all the tenements and that across, it just taught me that there's a lot. You've got to have a lot of luck as well. Yeah, that's, so that sort of tainted the way I've seen. So I've moved away from resources, even though funnily enough, I had a 250 bagger in resources but i just take that as like that's my lotto win that's lucky it taught me that you know uh because i spent a lot of time after that trying to to get a big win another big win but it never really happened in resources for me yeah brian allen i i wanted to jump in because you just mentioned that word luck and a common theme we've had from a few listeners is, is really striking at rich early um you know no one in their career will obviously hope for, for 250 baggers but i guess we wanted to talk about uh, emotion through this episode because for starters, how in hell did you manage to hold on to Northern Star for so long? Uh, and perhaps you can take us along some of your next investments and, and what got you into uh, small cap speculating? Okay, well, the, the reason that I held on to it so long because it was a small stake. I only took a small stake in, in Northern Star. Normally, I'd take, now I take a much larger stake. And if I'd done that, I probably would have struggled to hold it as long as I did because it would have been a big amount of money. So I only put a small stake in and I sort of just let it go. It, it, it was. I have to say it's luck because at times the price would just sit there for years. Oh, not for years, probably sit for 12 months and not move at all. I think I should just ditch this. And then something would come along. I'd read a little bit, something good, or I'd hear someone that I know, someone within the, within the industry would tell me something. I'd say, I'll just hold on to it a bit longer. And so basically, I because um, I knew that it was so hard to make money out of the resource sector, I thought I might as well start using what I actually know. And I always have a background in commerce, as I said. I thought I'll start valuing companies. And once I started valuing companies, I went the whole Ben Graham saga. I think everybody does that. Everybody reads security analysis. Everybody thinks they'll be the next Warren Buffett. Everybody thinks they'll be a great, you know, be able to value the company. But then it dawned, dawned on me that um, I was working against, you know, big industries. That that's all they do. They spend, you know, they, they employ people just to uh, analyze companies, to value companies. If they could find some net, net net stocks they'll do it a lot better than i could so i thought that was a, a losing challenge for me so i had to sort of distinguish myself somehow somewhere different and that's what that's what led me to small caps i thought i started to see not many people were looking at small caps you know everyone knows that but not many people look at the small caps and not many people are prepared to put the work into those small caps so that's what really got me into it oh, fantastic we might drill down to some of the themes on that later on in the show but did you want to give us a bit of a um Bit of an overview, I suppose, of your approach and what you might consider your edge in the market is. Okay, so basically what I do, and everybody gets a little bit scared when I say this, what I do is I read everything that comes off the ASX, every announcement that comes off the ASX. So what I do is I build up a knowledge base of every every small cap that comes across. Like you don't have to do this. Like if some people think that's too daunting, but look, I've got a disease I have to read. 
Uh, my father read every like read two papers front to back every day. He read the Stonebridge Review and the Sydney Morning Herald. He just had to do that. And he, genetically, that got passed on to me. I have to read, and so I read everything that comes off. So I get a I get a background of every industry. I, I understand what are the good directors, what are the bad directors. I remember going to an AGM once, and the guy he said he'd been on six companies, and I, and I thought, okay, I wrote those six companies down, and every one of them failed. And I thought, okay, if this guy comes on to any company that I have, I'm not going to just, not going to keep that company. And not that it was specifically his his fault or anything. I'm not saying his fault, but I learned by reading everything. And people, you know, you know, now we talk about directors buying, and we, we take that as a an issue, as you know as a positive sign. I was I was keeping records of like, okay, he's buying, but if he buys, does the price actually go up? Because he actually knows what he's doing. And, and and there's so, so many directors are on so many different companies. So you start to pick out the ones that are actually good at it and ones that are not good at it. Um, that I just build up and I try to say to people is what I try to build up the knowledge base of everything that's known and and where you will make your money is what is not known by the market because you'll see you see pot stocks and you see lithium come on. When they first come on to the market, people don't know how to value them. Like if they come on now, they won't take off. But when they first come on, they take off because people don't know how to be. It's not known by the market. And so what I was doing, I was reading the small caps, reading that they were talking about going into these things. And then I was thinking, okay, this is the next thing that's coming along because they tell people you've got to be, if you want to speculate, you've got to be in, in the good, you know, in the new ideas. So that's where I pick up most of my ideas because these companies, the small caps, they they look for, if they're not making any money in their industry, they're looking for other industries to raise capital and to move on to. So they're looking for the hot things. So that's where I get my most of my ideas from. Okay, so you'll monitor all the announcements from all of the small cap companies and um, you might get a short list to you and you're then sort of actively trading or how long is the sort of your position holding time for these sorts of look, companies? I was actually looking at that today. Uh, most would be less than six months because... I try to get in early on an idea, but the ones that actually start making revenue, I'll hold them for probably 18 months. So if you're, if you're listening to this, go to my website and see the month holdings that I have, because I keep my holdings on there, they've, I've had them for 18 months and all of them are actually making money. I've sold out of a couple recently because I got, there was some bad news, so I just cut and got out, but they'll remain on my list and I'll just monitor them to see if, if the revenue keeps coming in, if they can actually start keeping, getting market share. Alan, can you take us through uh, just that specific stock and what sort of changed your thesis? Because you obviously mentioned that um, you, you do a lot of reading, um, but it's your ability to pivot quickly, which which I suppose keeps you um, free from your emotions running. So you want to just um, take the listeners through that? Okay, basically, I tell everybody on my site, the most important thing for me is the 4C report, which is the quarterly report. And so uh, I'm a bit ashamed to say this, but I get excited in 4C season. That's when I get... You know, and my wife says, "Okay, kids, don't bother dad anymore. He's got a, this is his, this is his time of the of the quarter." <laughs> and you know, that's where I find some really good ones, or I, or it just just proves my theory. Like I I come up with a thesis on a company that I like, and I want to see that proven. And if it's not proven, I sell, and then I want, then I go back on, and then I watch and watch until maybe it'll prove itself again. But back to the one I was talking about before. Uh, what I want from a small cap is I want each quarter to be growing around twenty percent. And I want it to be doing that for, and a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, I see one big quarter and they jump in. No, you don't jump in straight away from revenue. You need them to do it for three or four quarters. You want growing revenue. And what I look for specifically is like 20% on 
revenue growth each quarter. That's what gets me interested. And then after I do that, then I start looking further down the 4C. I say, okay, how much money are they spending on uh, admin? How much money are they paying themselves? You know, are they just running this business to pay for themselves? Well, they're spending too much money to actually get the revenue. Alan, what's a good, I just imagine a lot of listeners would wonder what would be a good number to look for on the 4C. Is, is uh, 300, 300 grand on admin a good number for a quarter? What, what, uh, obviously, it's stock specific, but what's just some general rough guidelines for punters? It depends how much revenue they're pulling in. If they're pulling in bugger all revenue and they've got, three, like, just say they're pulling in 20K revenue and they've got 300 admin, I'd, I wouldn't be bothered. I wouldn't be bothered looking at it. I'd want that, 100, that 20 to go the next quarter, I want 80. The next quarter from that, I'd want to be up to 160. I'd want to see a path to cash flow positive. That's you'll see the market as soon as a, a small cap goes cash flow positive, everyone starts piling in. I think the analysts start looking at it. Analysts can then actually start recommending that stock once it, it gets to that point. But I want to. What I do personally is I keep a spreadsheet of all the companies that, have, that with four C's, and I sort of try to project where they're going to get to cash flow positive. And if they're doing better than what I project, then I'm excited. If they're doing less, then, you know, they might drop down my list. And as I said, the one that I got out of, that I sold out of, the, the revenue I was expecting, because I'm always constantly reassessing, they didn't do. They, they were flat on the revenue, and that really surprised me. So I thought, okay, cut, I'm out. I'll sit and watch now. I'm not going to let the price drift. You know, I'm not a, I won't hold on for dear life. They have to prove to me that they deserve my money. So if they come back next quarter and they've, they've fixed that up, and I've had that with another company, one company, they issued themselves a whole heap of bonus, you know, performance shares. And I thought, well, you know, they, in my opinion, they pushed up the revenue just to get those shares. And then the next quarter, the revenue was down again. So I thought, well, I don't trust you guys anymore. I'm out. But they actually have proven to me again that they know what they're doing and their revenue's taken off, so I'm back into that company again. Alan, you've just touched on a couple of really important things. One, I would just thought maybe you could mention a name if, if you're comfortable. Just, I think, a, a transient example would help. Okay, the first one I was talking about, and I wrote about it on my website, it was 5GN. I was expecting yep. their revenue to be much greater than what it was. So I was disappointed with that. But as I said, I still like the company, and I spoken with management and I thought they what they were doing was was what I expected them to do but that was just I was disappointed so I said I, t- I took off the other the other one that I was um, and I'm first I should say I'm not inferring they've done anything wrong and I, I shouldn't I wouldn't say that they're doing anything wrong but it just seemed to me that revenue that performance what I don't like is that their performance shares were were linked to their revenue Okay, maybe I wasn't aware of that at the time and I should have been more aware of that. And then it, it spiked up and then it, it fell back. There may have, you know, there, there was, they had issues, they had technical issues and different things like that. So that, you know, there, there may well have been their, um, actual reasons for that. And I don't want to suggest anything wrong with that. But for me, that was like I lost faith. And once I lose faith in the company, because the way I invest is a lot of faith because I have to, understand their ideas there's actually no you can't really value the company because they don't have they haven't reached consistent cash flow you don't know what their margins are going to end up being and you take them on faith and so what they i prefer companies that under promise and over deliver rather than over promise and under deliver 
And also with those small caps, when people overpromise, the market won't forgive. And it takes a long time for them to start trusting them again. So I don't want to be holding companies that the market doesn't trust, even though I might believe in them. But if the market, I'll wait for the market to trust them again. Yeah, I guess you're not. That's the old story, isn't it? You might be right, but whether the market agrees with you or not is ultimately going to take the price of the stock. Well, yeah, I think that, that's absolutely correct. Look, when I first started, I, I'm sure uh, all your listeners, if they're, look, they're starting out looking for 10 baggers, you go in thinking, I'm right. You know, you, you, have, to, you, you have to have conviction, but you think, oh, I, know, I know better than the market. And actually, you don't know better than the market. The market will give you the price. You can't make it make you can't make it give you the price you want. So you have to listen to what the market says. But um, I, I refer to Drucker Miller talks about strong conviction but weak hands. So I'll believe in a company until something's wrong and then I just let it go. I don't have to hold it don't have to hold it to the bottom. I don't have to prove anything to anyone else. I feel like some some new investors say, well I have to hold on to it to prove that I believe in it. But that's not doesn't help your bottom line. I'm only here to help my bottom line. My bottom line is happy to watch it fall to the bottom and then come back up again, re-emerge. And I'm happy to start again, all over again. Right. So just on that 5GN, so you, you flipped that out on the day of the quarterly, the 12th of August? Well, actually, that was one of my big mistakes. And I wrote about that's one of my mistakes. I still make mistakes. What I would normally do is just sell that out straight away. I would cut it and sell it out because it just became... And this is one of the emotional things. It just became a five-bagger, and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that's good. You know, that's, that's pretty good. And um, it, it wasn't actually the quarterly. It, it became a five-bagger. It hit, hit $1.60, I think it was, and that was my five-bagger. Five that's what I was just going to say, Alan, because, I mean, I was going to preface my next point was, well, you know, considering it was at 50 cents in January, you've done pretty well out of that investment. So, um, yeah, I guess obviously the expectations are baked in, right? It's always about what the market's expecting. And if, if a number doesn't hit, you've, you've got to be able to turn on a dollar. Yeah, yeah very much, very much so. So what I normally do is I use a, a thing of um, technical analysis plus my valuations plus my potential. So as it started the turn, I should have sold probably, I should have sold around 150. It would have, that would have been the first break. What I do is I don't sell completely. I'll sell out. I'll, I ease my way into stock positions that I ease my way out of positions and so I had a little bit left when I got to the to the 4C and that's when I sold I, I got I dumped the last bit on the 4C but I didn't didn't follow my own rules I got a little bit arrogant thought yeah Alan you know what you're doing you know you know better than the market and as it was coming back down I said I'm sure this 4C is going to be good don't sell and then I got to a point around 140 or something you idiot stick to your rules I, that's where I got rid of most of my stock you know, I cost myself like 40 grand, I think, something like that. I think I wrote about it. That by not following the rules that I have, it's a constant emotional battle. When you do, my worst time is after I've done really well and I've been doing really well because you start to think, yes, I know better than the market and you don't. But you start, that's, that's the constant battle that you have. You do, you go through these times thinking, yes, I'm doing, I know what I'm doing. I'm, I'm smart. You start saying to yourself that you're smart. But as soon as you start thinking that, the market says, okay, I'll teach you a lesson. And that's what they did. They taught me an expensive lesson. But that's life. That's what you play for. Alan, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask as well is um, when, when have you sort of, when did you formulate this sort of uh, almost ruthless approach? Did you get burnt on something pretty hard? Well, actually, the, when it first started, when I, so when I left, or actually when I was in uni, I thought, okay, because I love, I love numbers and I also loved horse racing. 
I had a couple of shares of some horses, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be a professional professional punter because I, you know, software was just really coming in at the time, and uh, I read uh, Don Scott's book that's Weights and Measures. If for any of you, any people that follow horse racing, he was the the ultimate um, mathematician, and he applied it to um, horse racing. So I did all that, and I actually did quite well for about eighteen months in my degree, and I thought, okay, this is pretty good. I made quite a bit of money quite quickly, and then I managed to lose it all. Well, not quite lose it all, but I lost quite a lot. But I thought, well, I don't want to do that ever again. And what the, what that actually did teach me is that I I was recording all my bets. I was uh, I learned about the Kelly criteria, learned about you know the optimum bet levels that I should be putting in. And when I started going to um, starting investing and small caps and that, I actually I started looking at my win ratios and um, and. Because what I'm really keen, what I'm really big on is I do a lot of back testing, not back testing on results. I'm back testing on what I've done. If I had, what if I'd sold earlier? And it really dawned on me once. Uh, I was, I don't know, I'm not sure what year it was, but I went back through for the last five years, and I realised if I'd sold on bad news because I record everything, I would have had like a forty percent better year. And it dawned on me, guys the hell are you doing why because when i was a professional partner i would review all the all my every every bet and i wasn't doing that when i was investing i was recording but i wasn't test doing testing on everything that i'd done and then once i once i realized that if i was 40 percent off just by cutting on the bad news i thought okay that's what you have to do and from then on it just became that's my routine if, if a bad information comes out i sell i'm out and that I don't have an emotional tie to the company like a lot of people do. And if people get burnt by companies, they never go near it again. That doesn't worry me. For me, if they if they produce again, then I'm happy to step back in. And I've done that a few times. Like um, ISX, I signed this. That I got out of the company. It, it did the right thing. I was actually talking to a friend. I said, look, they're going to hit cash flow positive next week. I'm going to have a big, put a big lot of money back into this company. And they did the perfect thing by me. They came out with an announcement on a Wednesday. The next Wednesday said, we've just hit maximum. You know, we've just gone cash flow positive. And I thought, finally, you know, all the work you do and, and all the records I've been holding, just to be able to say that had paid off. And it really sounds like there's a lot of background work that goes into it on there. You mentioned before that you'd be wanting to read quarterlies for, you know, at least three or four of them, which obviously implies a year of potential just watching and monitoring before you're exactly. going to potentially take a position yeah, in the stock. Yeah, that's what I do. So ISX is a cracker because even my younger brother told me about this thing about 40, 50 cents and I, I just couldn't chase it. I just didn't get up the curve and get in front of it and now it's a dollar uh, in a little space of three months. I'm assuming you you were, you were referring to the 31 December quarterly that you were waiting for or is it the, the 31 March quarter? I mean, that you doubled down because it just seems so parabolic and so quick. There was... Perhaps you can take us uh, through that in a back testing. Look, I'd have, to, I'd have to look. I don't remember exactly where it was. I just remember that I was talking to another investor. He's an investor in ISINUS, and, and we were both because I like to talk. I think it's good to talk to other investors to get other because you get isolated. You want to hear other people's views on the companies. And he was saying he was just saying he had some issues with the company. And I said, look, and and as I said, I don't. I have to check. I have to go through my records and find exactly when it was. But you could you could look through the announcements as when they came out and they said we were we were cash flow positive on a weekly basis or something like that. And it was just nice that I actually had my my charts because I have little charts of cash flow positive and that, and they actually lined up for once. They're never normally that exact. 
I can't. I'd like to say I could do it. Yes, this week they'll be cash flow positive. It never happens that way. But this was just a, this was just a lucky instance that it was a case, that it that it worked out that way. And I think it's just important with that example too that you mentioned that you were previously holding them at some stage in the past where you but you sold them yep. because they didn't meet your expectations. Is that yep. right? And then you came back in once once it looked like they were going to cross over again. Yeah, yeah that's right. Once the once revenue started taking off again, I got my twenty percent revenue growth. Um, and I saw that the markets were opening up. So they were having a lot of technical issues with their um, bringing on tier one um, card holders and different stuff like that. So it was, um, they went for a lot of issues. And I think they're still going for a lot of issues. If you read the, if you read the last quarterly, they're still, still working on a thing. But the good, what uh, I signed this is a good example of the way that I uh, invest or what I look for is they had this huge market just open up because when I, when I started reading about it, I signed this, they had, uh, Europe just brought in this, know, it's like know your customer. You have to know who, who you're sending money to, who you're getting money from. And, this, and I just I, I started reading about them and I started about the new rules that were coming in in Europe and through the US and across the world. I thought, gee, this is a huge market. And that's what, that's what gets excite, me excited. If I see a company, a new company that's not, that, like when I signed this, that's going into this huge market, I think, well, the ASX doesn't know how to value that. And as soon as they don't know how to value a huge market, there's big upside. Most of the time, I'll write it for a year, but if the company's good and it starts making money, that's where you can get your 10, 20, maybe 50 bagger out of it. Because I said, I've said to people, I, I buy small caps and I dream that I can actually value them one day. Because if I can value them, that means they've grown into a proper business, they have proper cash flows, you know, I can actually assign a value to them. And that's what, you know, well, hopefully I sign this becomes a company like that. They've got, they've got the market there. But there's a lot of, I'm, not, I'm saying, I, I wouldn't get overexcited because if you look, uh, I wrote an article about it. If you look at, I attached a link, there are hundreds of companies trying to do the same thing. So, because everybody knows this is a big market <laughs> and you just got to be lucky that the company that you jump on is the one that, that, takes all you know as the winner it's probably a good time to mention as well and just as a caveat that we discussed before we started recording is these are certainly not recommendations or advice for the particular companies talked about now because um you mentioned to us earlier that you'd cut and sell a company in a heartbeat if this news was different tomorrow yeah, yeah look that's exactly right people always ask me for tips and i say look i could tell you this now but if i find new information tomorrow i will sell and I know, and i can guarantee most people that i say to sell won't sell because they get this emotional attachment if they have a little win then I think, oh, yeah, I'm going to get a bigger win. If they lose money, they go, oh, just hold it till it gets back to break even. And the one thing that really, really irks me is people say, it can't go any lower. Well, look, I'll tell you, I've held stocks that have gone to zero. I've held stocks in the GFC and the CEO came out and said, oh, yes, everything's great. And they went VA two weeks later. So that taught me, you know, the GFC taught me a huge lesson. Don't trust anything they tell you uh, unless it comes out, you know, well, look, even I was going to say, unless it comes written out on the 4C, well, look, even big, you couldn't trust big and what was coming, what they were saying on the 4C. So in the game of specs, you have to be prepared to lose the lot. That's why staking and, and, and how much you put on each company is, is probably just as important, most vital thing, because some, some people just go all in on a small cap and that'll just wipe them out. And I never do that. I never do that. <laughs> Just going back to um, a little bit earlier, you mentioned just selling, you know, if the story changes, you'll sell. How do you deal with liquidity constraints if you're taking um, maybe larger positions or if you're scaled up and then suddenly there isn't much 
liquidity. Is that a consideration for how much size your positions? Definitely. That's, that's the biggest, for me at the moment, because I'm just growing to a size, that liquidity is really a big issue for me. And I say to people that what I have to do, and uh, a lot of the time, because I get in early on a lot, I try to get in really early on a lot of stocks. And once they start to take off, I'll buy up. And once I buy up to a level, if a good announcement comes out, I will need to take profit off the table. I don't sell out completely, but I need to sell into that liquidity that comes with the good announcements. If I don't sell out then, if I get O2 over, over um, if I'm holding too big a position and something goes wrong, then I can't get out. And that's my biggest worry. And it probably limits how much I can actually have in a portfolio or have in any position. Uh, my hope is that I, I, I'll, I'll scale out of that position. Uh, you know, good, good, a good announcement will come through. It'll give me some volume. People will come in to buy. I'll take money off the table. And then hopefully the next step is that the company goes on to bigger and better things. And then I add back into that position again. And so you're not necessarily so going to pull back in price. It's, it's, you'll just add back to the position once once the story continues to progress, well, even if the price is higher. That's right. Yeah. For me, yeah, um, I, I, net, I try never to buy back on a fall back in price because for me, if I'm right about the if I'm right about the company, the price should be going up. If I'm wrong about the company, the price will be coming back down. And as I said, when I buy a small position, if, if the price goes against me, probably twenty percent fall, I'll sell and just get out and I'll start again. Okay, so I was going to ask that you do use a fixed sort of stop loss, a price based um, stop loss generally as well. Then do you? Yeah, that's right. And do you ret- uh, hold so that the for, price, as the price goes up and as this, the story improves as well, or is that more of your initial entry type stop? That's, an, that's an, for, the, for the initial entry, that'll be like a 20% stop to get back out. But as the company goes up, as I said, I'll, if, I'm, if I start getting overweight, I'll scale back my position. Uh, if, if there's really good news and I think this is a game changer, I'll add back to the position. Uh, and then once we get enough volume, and this is what I dream of having enough volume because enough people will start looking at it, it's actually becoming business, then I can use technically indicators to start getting back out. So if the price starts to dip, then I'll start to slowly edge my way back out of the, out of the company. Like I won't just say it cuts through a moving average that I'm using as a as a sell signal. I don't sell a lot. I might sell 10%. Might, then the next time it goes a bit further, I might sell another 10% just to scale my way back out of the company at the same time. Of course, if the price goes. What's your uh, moving average, Alan? What's your uh, moving? Just I'm not going to tell. Moving average. I'm not telling what the moving average <laughs> is. Not, not that there's any great secret in that. What I say to people is, you have to determine what volatility that you're you, you can accept. Maybe some people it might be 20 days. Some people it might be 50 days. For me, I think 50 days is too big for a small cap. But everybody has a different volatility that they can deal with. Alan, do you want to just quickly cover off? Obviously, you want to protect your moat, but. We haven't, I don't think, believe, talked about moving averages. So just a quick explanation of that would be useful, I think. Okay. Simple moving average is the price over a certain period. So if it's for the last 10 days, it's just the average of the price over the last 10 days. So if it falls back through that price, you can sell. Some, and it's the same thing going up. If the price goes up through a certain simple moving average, say a 10-day moving average, some people like to buy. The, the big one that I tell people about, and a lot of the fund managers usually use what called a 50-day and a 200-day cross. That's called a golden cross. And that's where people, are, you know, big managers move in and out of that. But I dream about my company getting that big. <laughs> you know, that would mean that the fund managers are in it, they're pumping money into it, like, you know, like after pay grew to people want to have it in funds and stuff like that. You know, that's what, that's what you, 
that's what we dream of. That's our 10 bagers, that's our 20, 50s, could it turn out to be 100? Just to go back to what we were talking about before, can you talk a little bit about how you do, you mentioned you scale in and, and out of positions. Can you talk about how you approach that? Is that a price-based thing, a technical? Well, or? basically with small caps, there's not, you can use technicals, but it's, there's not enough volume to make technical analysis really worthwhile. What I would say, what you can do with technical analysis is buy it on a base. Don't buy it. The price is falling. Don't say, oh, this is, this is cheap. It can't get any cheaper because it certainly can. Wait for it to, to bottom out and just flatline. You know, so the price is moving sideways. So everybody that wants to get out has gotten out. I also say about technical analysis. Technical analysis won't tell you the future, but it will tell you about what's happening in the market. You can see is, is volume drying up. Is all the sellers gone? And if they're all they're gone, then they start, okay, well, maybe now I'm interested. If you really like the company, now I'm interested. Don't fight the market. So that's what I tell people. That one, technical analysis won't tell you the future, but you can learn from it. And the thing that, you know, that gets me, and I was talking about before, is um, is just people overstaking. So what I do is if a small company that I like, what I do is I've, I've done all my four C's, I know what the revenue is growing. And I'm like, okay, so what I take is I take a small stake in the company. As soon as you take a small stake in the company, you start to focus on a company. Because I, I watch so many companies, as I said, I, I've got these spreadsheets, but as soon as I put some money into a company, my heart and soul goes into that company. And most people are the same because they don't want to lose money. So that focuses the mind. So then you start watching, you start looking for the good stuff and the bad stuff. And so what I say is, as the price goes up, I'm prepared to buy more. And the reason that I'm, people say, yeah, yeah, people get you know, classic anchoring. I say, but I don't want to pay more for, the, for what I've already paid. Why don't I just go and be at the, you know, at the start and not pay so much? Well, the problem is one with these small cuts, they haven't proven themselves. If they, you've got no volume to sell into, if if, thing goes, if everything goes wrong, so what you want is you want to start. Well, this is what I do anyway. I I start off with a small uh, small stake in the company and focus my attention on the company. Then, as good news comes out and as the price starts to rise, I'm happy to buy more. I'm happy to buy more at a higher price because it's it's de-risking. So I'm actually, for me, I'm buying at a better price because it's a less risky company. That's that. I don't see it as I don't see it. Uh, I never anchor because I see it's a better investment. And for me, I'll be happy like with APT when I started buying at two dollars. I was really worried about the company. I thought, is there a market for it? And then the market just kept. You just saw the signs everywhere. So I was buying all this good information was coming in. I'm I'm buying at six, eight, ten, twelve dollars because it, for me it was cheaper then in the sense that it had been de-risked. I knew there was a market there. I knew it was taking off. I knew people were using it. But when I was buying it at $2, I was just hoping that people would start using it. We can talk a lot about Afterpay, um, APT, um, but you've just sort of provided me with a question I had before with ISX. I signed this. You've obviously been comfortable to buy it at a higher price later, um, and that's something that a lot of people find hard. I know I find it very difficult myself because if you've exited a trade and you thought, you know what, I've taken two or three bags, that's it. Take it off the watch list, go and find another train. I'm sure some of the punters have heard that before. How have you been able to overcome that inert sort of human emotion and go, you know what, I did pay $2 for this, but now I'm buying it at 6 and 8 and 10 Because I'm sure there's probably a 1,000 people more than that that looked at Afterpay and thought, you know what, this thing's doubled, it's tripled, you know, six, seven, eight bucks. You know, I was angry with my wife when I tell her earlier, but I probably had the opportunity to just like every other planet to buy it at seven and eight bucks. But I just thought, no, nah, this has run too hard. I'm, I'm interested in how you've sort of dealt with that. Well, uh, I, 
I think I tell everybody you'd have to view it as a business. So it's not you have to make the decision on what's put in front of you. So each new investment or each each new buy has no relationship to your previous buys. And I also think also you need to ask yourself is or, or this is what I ask myself is I'd say okay I've got money to invest after pay has gone up from six dollars to twelve dollars is it it is still my best investment. So that's why I have to invest in Afterpay. I have to be honest with myself and say, yes, the price has gone up, but that is still my best investment idea. So I will add to that, in, that investment. And I also, as I said, for me, it's, it's, it's uh, you build up trust with the management. If the manager performs, my role is to support them. So I keep, I'm not actually supporting the money that's going to go to them, but I, I start adding to, the, to my thesis. Yeah, that's where you have to have the conviction in your beliefs. If you believe in the company, then you add to it. But then I, this is what, People struggle with, and that's why I tell nobody to follow any tips that I say. If things go wrong, you've got to you've got to also be prepared to not be emotionally involved. It's not an emotional decision for me. It's just I want to make money. If you can help me make the money, I'm I'm on you. It's, if you're going to help me lose money, I'm not hanging around for it. I'm out straight away. And I think that I think I did that because I've lost money. I lost money when I was punting and when I worked on specs and that. I hate to lose money. I've read a few people say um, uh, that they hate losing money and some of the great investors like Soros and that, they all hate losing money. I thought, well, I think I hate money, losing money just as much as anybody else. So I can't sit there and watch. I can't. Uh, so I have faith, but to a level. If they, if, they, if they damage my faith, I don't make excuses for them. I said to someone on Twitter the other day, if if you if someone posts something against the company that you hold and you rush to defend the company, you're too emotionally involved. You see that all the time. Somebody says something bad about, I don't know, CSL or something like that, and then everybody rushes, but it's a great company. And then I think you know immediately that you are too emotionally involved. If you don't care, if somebody says something bad about your company and you don't care, then that's the mindset that you have to you have to have to make money. Alan, that's I just want to jump in because that is such a fundamental point. And I know Joel and I have spoken about it and we've all spoken to punters about it. Some of our best punts have been contrarian ones where you literally see on hot copper just yeah. filth because they've been torched and they can't remove themselves from investment. And just as a basic filter, I find just jumping on hot copper and I, I don't, I don't use it posted or anything like that anymore. Just as a quick yardstick to what people are posting. And if everyone's high-fiving each other, that generally is a bit of a worry for me. So I think that's a really, really critical point. Oh, look, I couldn't agree more. I hate going on a hot copper for the simple fact I see people losing so much money on there. They get on there and, they, and then they lose the money and they have family issues and they have problems. And you can't, you can't invest like that because it's hard enough making the decisions without having something that might affect your family. And, you know, I was... I've said before, I'm, I'm lucky that my wife supports me and she said, you, you can do whatever you want to do because I, I trust that you'll make the right decision. And when I first started investing, that was actually pretty hard because then I thought, I can't actually be as, can't take as big a risk as I would if I didn't have a family because I don't want to blow what we've got already. So I took a very, a very uh, cautious approach to investing. That's probably why I went down the valuation angle. I thought, if I do this, you know, get dividends and everything like that. But then it's, then I actually learned by me being too cautious, I was actually losing money. So I was risking money. And then I went through all the calculations and I learned all about portfolios. And I thought if I split, 
if I actually split and hold the right number of small caps, my risk is just is no greater than me just investing in these dividend stocks. And so you've got to do all this background information. You've got to learn all these different things. But that, like, you know, hot cover just scares me. I, I, I went on there for like, I signed some of these like, I've got everything I have in this. It's like, oh my God, don't do that. Because, you know, you, you could just have seen people's lives destroyed by just putting all their money into one company. And I'd never do that. I, I'm, part of my game is that I will lose. And part, you will do that. Every investor, every, one of your investments, if you're lucky, one, I've had numerous investments go to zero. But that's just part of the game. And you have to be, you have to, your risk, the way you treat risk has to be prepared for that. Okay, thank you very much, listeners, for listening to Episode 7, Part 1. We think this has been a terrific conversation so far and we very much look forward to you listening to Part 2 where Alan specifically talks to us about going to AGMs, whether it's actually worth it, a little bit of it more about doing your own research. He also talks about identifying trends and sectors and Alan also gives us his next 10-bagger pick. We hope to see you for part two of episode seven. Thank you very much for listening to Trolling the 10 Days. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.